So a confession I have for you this morning, something you need to know about me is that I am absolutely terrible with directions. Um, If you invite me over to your house, if you invite me to a restaurant and you're the kind of person who gives turn-by-turn directions out loud, you need to know that I am just gonna nod as though I have some idea what you're saying. Uh, But in reality, as soon as you're done, I'm gonna put that destination in my iPhone and I'm gonna let Siri guide me along the way. Uh, I've just never really been all that good with directions. In fact, when Han and I were first married, uh, you know that we attended church here at Grace and we lived in a garage apartment over by North Park Mall. And I kid you not, in those early days of marriage, the thing we argued about the most was the fact that between here and our apartment by North Park, I would often get lost. I mean, I, we did this you know, trip many times a week, but every time I would get lost. I would take a wrong turn and this would cause some early conflict in our marriage. Uh, but over the years, rather than just getting better with directions, I've instead learned to come up with really good excuses. So when we were in seminary and I would get lost, my excuse was that I had this kind of absent-minded professor thing going on, right? That I was so lost in the brilliance of my mind and these grand thoughts about God and his word that I didn't have time to focus on simple things like getting from grace to our apartment. Uh, For the last six years living in Wyoming, A great excuse is that I was taking the scenic route. Uh, Wyoming can be a very beautiful place to drive around, and so uh, rather than taking the shortest distance between point A and point B, I would take the scenic route instead of getting lost. Uh, But this morning, as we open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, I found another really good excuse. When I get lost, when I take a detour... What we're going to see together this morning is that it's biblical. The Apostle Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 3, takes a gigantic detour from his original train of thought. The Apostle Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 3, is going to begin with a certain line of thinking in verse 1, and then in verses 2 through 12, he's going to get lost in this detour of God's mysterious plan to bring together this group of people called the church. But then it's only when we come to verse 13 that Paul finally arrives at his ultimate destination where he was intending to begin starting in verse 1. So follow along with me. You can see there in your bulletin, I've given you our GPS step-by-step turn through our passage this morning. First, we're going to see the detour, which focuses in on the mystery and then the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But all of that is a detour. But the ultimate destination, Paul's ultimate point We're going to see number two on your outline under the destination. So grab your Bible. Let me read for you, beginning with the detour. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins his original line of thinking in verse 1 by saying this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. 
And then notice that big dash. Because starting in verse 2 all the way through verse 13 or verse 12, Paul is going to launch into this detour. He's going to veer off into the weeds. But before we get to the detour, let me point out just a few things in verse 1. Paul says there in verse 1, as he begins this line of thinking, he says, I, Paul, notice this, the prisoner, not of Rome, not of Caesar, but the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Tuck this in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it later. But Paul sees himself there in prison, not as a prisoner of Rome, not as a prisoner of Caesar, but he identifies himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then then he detours off starting in verses two through 12. Notice the detour now, number one on your outline, starting with the mystery, Ephesians 3 verse two. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So here Paul breaks away from his original thought and he launches into this detour starting here in verse two. And he begins this detour with that very important word, if. Now, if is a very short word, and so it's a word that we often just skip right past. But if you miss this, you're going to misunderstand what Paul is doing in this entire passage. Paul breaks off into this detour of his original line of thinking, and he says, listen, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, How many of you have a net Bible? Many professors at Dallas Seminary put together this Bible translation called a net Bible. It's a great translation. If you don't have it, you should get one. But there's a really important footnote there in the net Bible. By using the word if here, Paul is not calling into question whether or not they've actually heard about this stewardship Paul's going to talk about. Remember, Paul was there in Ephesus for two and a half to three years. He told them this stewardship, this mystery, what he's going to elaborate on in this detour. He told them this already. By using the word if, the Net Bible says, he's using this provocative language to engage his audience in thinking. See, in using this word if, Paul is not doubting that they've heard this message. He's stimulating their thinking to recall this message they already have heard. What Paul is actually doing here, he's somewhat facetiously saying, you guys remember this, don't you? You remember I've told you about this before. I've told you about, notice the content, the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. So by using the word if, what is it that Paul wants the Ephesians to be stimulated in their thinking about? The stewardship of God's grace, which was given to Paul for the Ephesians. Paul wants them to think about, to recall to their mind what he has told them already before when he lived there. 
He wants them to think about the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. The word stewardship is another important word. It means order and arrangement or plan. Paul wants the church in Ephesus to think about, to recall to their mind the stewardship, the order, the arrangement, the plan, notice that God gave to Paul for the church there in Ephesus. So what is this plan all about? What is the plan that Paul wants the Ephesians to reconsider? Well, notice verse three. That by revelation... There was made known to me, to Paul, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, to this mystery, when you read about it, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So again, Paul is wanting the Ephesians to recall to their mind this plan, this stewardship, this arrangement. And here, Paul also says this plan, this stewardship, this arrangement was a mystery before. A mystery, when you see that word mystery in the New Testament, it describes something that was hidden in the Old Testament but has now been revealed. So Paul is wanting the church in Ephesus to remember this plan of God that was previously not known, but has now been made known. God, notice Paul says, God made known this plan to Paul by revelation. And notice as well that this plan, this mystery of God, you too, verse four, can understand it when you read about it. And not only has this mystery been made known to Paul and to the church in Ephesus, but it's also been revealed, verse 5, to all his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So Paul wants the Ephesians to think about this plan, this stewardship, this arrangement of God that was once a mystery but has now been revealed. Well, what is it about? I'm glad you asked. Notice verse six. What is this mysterious stewardship all about? Verse six, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. So what is the mysterious plan of God that has now been revealed to Paul, to the church in Ephesus, that you too can read about? It's about God's plan to bring together Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ. That Gentiles are now fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, along with the Jews in this new entity called the church. That's the grand mystery that Paul wants the church in Ephesus to think about again. By the way, the word fellow heirs describes an inheritance, that Gentiles are fellow inheritors along with the Jewish people. The phrase fellow members uh, means members of one body together, again, describing Jew and Gentile together in the church. 
And the phrase fellow partakers describes an accomplice in a plot, in a story, that Gentiles are now an accomplice in this story of God. But this is what Paul, by using that little word if, he wants to stimulate their thinking to think again about what God is doing and bring Jew and Gentile together. But let's pause right there for just a second. Because as we look at what Paul is saying here in these verses, that God is bringing together Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ called the church, he's already talked about this, right? We saw this last week at the end of chapter two. This is kind of what chapter two was about. And I'm sure all of you remember every word I said last week, right? You've not forgotten a word of it. But we saw this last week. What Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter three is he's really reiterating and restating and rephrasing what he's already established at the end of chapter two, that God is bringing together Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. So why is he being redundant? Why is he going off into this grand detour of something the Ephesians already know? Because he really wants them to dig in and lean in and think about it. It all goes back to that little word, if. Paul is taking this detour, if you will, to bring the Ephesians and take them down a trip of memory lane. He's taking them on a trip down memory lane, recalling to their mind something he's already told them. You know, in the last couple months since moving back to Dallas, one thing I've really enjoyed doing with Hannah is we've taken our friends who have visited us and we've taken our children uh, on a trip down memory lane. And I've really enjoyed driving my kids around Dallas and so far I've not gotten lost because I have my iPhone. But we went and many times have driven by the apartment we used to live in. We've, you know, been in the church a lot with our kids. We've gone to North Park Mall where I used to work. We've gone down to Dallas Seminary where we used to study. And I've enjoyed taking a trip down memory lane. It's been fun for me and it's been enlightening for my children. And this is what Paul is doing here as well. Here in Ephesians chapter three, he's restating and reiterating things he's already told the church in Ephesus. When he lived among them for three years and things he's already really communicated in chapter two. But Paul is doing all of this. He's going off on this grand detour. He's taking the scenic route to get them to think again about what God is doing, about the plan of God, the arrangement of God, the stewardship of God of which Paul has been entrusted, this mysterious mysterious plan of bringing together Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ called the church. So that's the mystery. Now let's take a look at the ministry. Paul is amazed that he has been entrusted with this ministry of communicating this message to the church there in Ephesus. Notice verse eight of chapter three. Still under number one on your outline. Paul says this, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. The very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. A couple things I want you to see here. Uh, First of all is that phrase, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. The words to me is emphatic. Paul is calling attention to the fact that God has entrusted this ministry to him who he describes himself as the very least of all the saints. Paul simply cannot believe that God entrusted him of all people with this ministry of revealing to the world this mysterious plan of God that has been hidden from ages past. In fact, that phrase, the least of all the saints, you could translate as the leastest of all the saints. Paul sees himself at the very rock bottom, the scum of the earth. How could God use him to proclaim this amazing message? And many commentators wrestle back and forth with how the Apostle Paul can view himself as the leastest of all the saints. And some Many, in fact, say, well, it's because Paul persecuted the church, right? I mean, he was pre-Christ, a pretty crummy guy in that respect. But many commentators highlight that probably what Paul is doing here in saying this is he's raising the thought in the Ephesians' mind that if God can use him, who's the very least of all the saints, then imagine what God can do through you. If Paul can use God, the very, or if God can use Paul, the very leastest of all the saints, then imagine what he can do through you. He's opening up, in other words, this ministry that's been entrusted to him for all of the Ephesians to take part in. And what is the ministry? Well, notice he says there in verse eight, the ministry is to preach Christ to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light, to make known what is the administration or the stewardship of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. In other words, what Paul is doing here in calling himself the leastest is he's inviting us all in to preach this gospel to the Gentiles, to make known this mysterious plan of God that has been hidden since eternity past, that we too get to participate in this ministry. Why? Notice verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the the heavenly places. You see what Paul does, does here? He's highlighting this mysterious plan of God, this secret plan of God to bring together Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ called the church. This plan of God that was hidden since eternity past, but has now been made known not only to Paul, 
not only to the church in Ephesus, but it's now being made known where? In the heavenly places among all the rulers and authorities. This once secret plan of God is now being proclaimed on earth and also in heaven. That this grand and glorious plan of God to bring together people under the Son of God is now being proclaimed across the earth and in heaven itself. And then notice verse 11. This stewardship, this ministry, this plan of God, verse 11, was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This plan of God, this ministry with which Paul has been entrusted here we see here, has been an eternal purpose. In other words, when the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, this idea of the church was not God's backup plan. This was his eternal plan all along. And Paul has now been entrusted, and we have been entrusted with this plan, which God carried out in Jesus. And in Jesus, notice Paul reemphasizes the idea that we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. I want to pause right there for just a second and look a little more closely at verse 12. Describing the person of Jesus, he says, in whom in Jesus we, including Jew and Gentile, have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The word for boldness is a word that describes our speech. It's used outside of the New Testament to describe freedom of speech. And the word access means freedom of approach. Uh, Think of it this way. If you were invited into the presence of a king or of a queen... Um, you'd probably enter in with a little bit of fear, right? But here Paul is saying that through Jesus, we can approach God with freedom of speech and freedom of approach. We can approach God confidently and say to him, really, whatever we need to. This is an amazing idea, especially when you're talking to a bunch of Gentiles who have had absolutely no access to God. That now through Jesus, they are invited into this mysterious plan of which Paul has made a minister to invite the Gentiles in to have boldness in speech and access to God himself. And then notice the phrase, through faith in him. Paul emphasized this last week, I emphasized this last week, that all of this is possible through Christ, and we access that through faith in him. And so, right where you are here in this room, those of you watching online, I want to put before you that if you have never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, as the one who died on the cross for your sins and for mine, I want to give you the invitation, the offer, right where you are, right where you're seated, to simply trust in him. And trusting in him, you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you're redeemed, that you're made right with God, and you can now 
confidently come before him. If you've not trusted in Jesus, I want to give you that invitation to do so now. But again, as I look at these verses here, the beginning part of chapter 3, most of what Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter 3 is somewhat redundant. First of all, he said a lot of it at the end of chapter 2. And we can believe with reasonable certainty that Paul preached on these ideas when he lived there in Ephesus for three years. So why is he being so redundant? Why is he reminding the church in Ephesus of that which they already know? Why would Paul take the time to emphasize this at length, to go off on this grand detour away from his original thought that we saw in verse 1? Where is Paul going with all of this? Well, look at number two on your outline, the destination. Where was Paul going before he went off on this grand detour in verses two through 12? Notice again, verse one, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, verse 13, therefore I ask you, not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. When Paul began Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, where he originally was going was to encourage the church in Ephesus not to lose heart over the fact that he's in prison. Before Paul went off onto this grand detour, taking the scenic route, reminding them of what God is doing through Christ, this mysterious ministry with which uh, Paul has been entrusted by God. Before all of that, Paul's original intention was to tell the church in Ephesus, listen, don't lose heart, don't get discouraged on the fact that I'm in prison. Don't get discouraged by the fact that I'm in prison. Now keep in mind again that Paul has known these people. He lived in Ephesus and ministered among this church for two and a half to three years. Of course, it was natural for them to worry about the Apostle Paul. Having heard that he was in prison, that he's been arrested for his faith, isn't it natural for the church in Ephesus to worry about Paul, to become discouraged a little bit? And recognizing that they would have naturally been discouraged by this news, Paul says, listen, let me ask something of you. Don't get discouraged by it. On account of my tribulations, which are for your benefit, it's actually for your glory, he says. Because think about it. If God had not entrusted this ministry to Paul, this very ministry that ended up putting him in prison, then they, they never would have heard the gospel. They never would have been invited into this mysterious stewardship plan of God to bring together Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. At the end of the day, what Paul is asking of the Ephesians as he takes this huge detour is he's asking them not to be discouraged over the fact that he's in prison because it actually plays a part into God's plan to bring the gospel to the nations. 
And so when you really take a step back and see everything Paul is saying here, what looks like a grand detour in the thinking of Paul is actually no detour at all. Let me say that again. What looks like a detour in Paul's thinking is actually no detour at all. I think this was designed by the Apostle Paul. He could have said, think about this. Paul could have said, chapter three, verse one, don't get discouraged by the fact that I'm in prison. But instead, what Paul does is he takes the scenic route and he reminds them, using that little word if, he reminds them of what they already know that God has a plan to bring together Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ and to reconcile the body of Christ to the Father through the Son. And all of this is part of God's plan, even the fact that Paul is in prison. Paul effectively takes the Ephesians on this beautiful scenic route, reminding them of what God is doing. Instead of focusing in on his circumstances there in prison, Paul instead takes this grand detour to remind them of the bigger picture of what God is doing in Christ. Notice in this journey, this grand detour, this scenic route of this beautiful story of what God is doing in Christ, there are several ironies in here that I want to point out to you. Paul, along this journey, identifies several ironic tensions. First of all, verse one, that there rotting in a Roman prison, he views himself ultimately not as a prisoner of Rome or of Caesar, but as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, because it's all a part of God's plan. We see the irony that Paul, the very leastest of all the saints, has been entrusted to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ himself. We see the irony that Gentiles, who were once outsiders and excluded from the plan of God, are now welcomed and invited to be co-heirs, co-members, and co-partakers along with the Jews. We see the irony of this secret mystery that was hidden for ages past, in eternity past, this plan created by God that has now been revealed to Paul, to the church in Ephesus, and even up in the heavenly places themselves. This huge mystery that's now fully made known to everyone. We see the irony of Paul bound there in prison, in chains. And yet he has complete access to approach God confidently and make his request known to him. Do you see what Paul is doing in taking the scenic route? He's reminding the Ephesians of what they already know to take their eyes off of the bad circumstances, and to instead focus in on what God is doing despite of and in the midst of those circumstances. You could really summarize all of these verses with one question. What I think Paul is ultimately doing here in these verses is he's wanting the Ephesians to ask themselves this question. Has my imprisonment actually caused you to doubt the plan of God? Has something as simple as my imprisonment 
caused you to call into question the plan, the stewardship, the administration of a sovereign God? Can somebody like Caesar really thwart the plan of God? And the answer is no. Paul, in effect, is encouraging the Ephesians to take the scenic route to instead of, instead of focusing in on the problems to see what God is doing. And I think this is an encouragement that we need today. It's no secret, it's no grand mystery to any of us that the world in which we live is broken. That this has been a difficult year, year and a half. And on this weekend, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we need no reminders that this world is broken. And it's so easy for us to focus in on the circumstances, as bad as they are, and yet fail to see what God is doing in the midst of it. To see how even in the midst of things like imprisonments, God is still at work to continue this mysterious ministry of bringing forth the good news of his son to people who need to hear it. I think the challenge here in these verses, the challenge for the Ephesians and the challenge for you and me is to ask ourselves this, when things seem like they're out of control, do we trust in the plan of a sovereign God or do we doubt? Do we act as though God is up in heaven frantically figuring out how to regain control of this world? Or do we trust him enough that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we know that he's gonna use even the bad things in our world to bring more and more people to faith in his son? The challenge of this passage for you and for me, for the church there in Ephesus is to take the scenic route, to see what God is doing, to see that God is at work, to see that the plan of God, the administration of God cannot be thwarted. So there in your bulletin, I've given you some application questions to consider, but your one thing for this week is this. I want you to write a note of encouragement Maybe this is a note of encouragement to yourself, <laughs> but I want you to write a note of encouragement to someone who might be discouraged because again, our world is kind of discouraging. But I want you to remind that person to focus on what the Lord has done for them, in them, and through them for the progress of the gospel. That we don't lose sight of the fact that even in a broken world, God is still at work. God still has a plan. He's still in control. He's still bringing people to himself, whether or not we see it. Because we all know that it's easy to get discouraged, to lose sight of what God is doing. But the good news is that we see in this passage is God still has a plan. It's all a part of his mysterious plan to bring together people in the person of Jesus. What Paul wants us to do here is to take the scenic route see the beauty of what God is doing. And if Paul can get lost in this detour of God's beautiful story, then you and I can too. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And first of all, we confess, I confess, how easy it is 
to take our eyes off of you and to only see the problems of our world. And on this particular weekend, as we're reminded of brokenness and conflict and war, as we look back on the last year and a half of pandemic and tensions across the board, we need no reminder that this world is broken. And we confess to you, God, that it's easy to get discouraged. And so I ask, Father, that by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see that this truly is still within your control. That nothing that has happened, nothing that can happen is gonna thwart your plan to bring together people like Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ that nothing, as bad as it might be, can ultimately thwart your plan to bring redemption through your son. So help us to see it and help us to live as though we actually believe it. I pray this for myself. I pray this for each one here. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.